You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. To find more resources and learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. We are going to uh, 2 Timothy. We're going to 2 Timothy. We're starting a new series this morning um, going through 2 Timothy. Um, before we talk about that, I just want to say I'm not Pete. You know, uh, If you've been here for a while, then like me, you really enjoyed Pete's preaching style. I'm, I can't or, or try to perfectly emulate that. So thanks for being here to listen to me. I'm sorry. As uh, Charles Garland told me last week, you know, no one's good until they do it every week. So uh, <laughs> thanks for putting up. Um, anyways, my, my goal is the same as we said earlier with the song, just to help us look to Jesus. Um, we're, I'm really excited about this uh, series we're going to be starting in Second Timothy. I've been there a lot. You know, Timothy's one of these pastoral epistles these letters from Paul to these young pastors, Timothy and Titus, but also to the church because they kept them and recorded them and we have them in our Bibles. So they're for all of us. And, um, you know, First Timothy and Titus are very similar about qualifications for elders and leaders and how to run a local church and, and how much character counts there. Second Timothy has its kind of own unique message. It's about the foundations of our belief, the foundations of our church, the, the foundations of a church that's in crisis and in trial. And uh, I'm really excited about this. This has been really life-giving to me, at least, to look to Scripture, to these, this particular book. Um, and just as we think about it, you know, like it, <laughs> that question about foundations, I, uh, that's the series title, A Firm Foundation. I really like the hymn, A Firm Foundation, too. So, um, but as you think about that picture of a foundation, right, the thing you're standing on in a building, um, the... 2 Timothy has some amazing pictures. We know our foundation in Christ, is, our foundation is Christ, but it has some amazing and profound wisdom in how we fill that picture out. You know, to go a little bit past the Sunday school answer of what's your foundation, Jesus. Uh, to go a little bit past that, uh, it gives us some really, really helpful um, categories and imagery to, to fill that out. So that I'm really excited about this. Um, as you think about like your foundation, you know, hypothetical, hard to imagine. What if you got some crazy news that you would have not believed at all that sort of shakes your, your vision and authority of the church? Um, where would you turn? Where would you turn in that? I'm sorry to make light of that, but you know, we got to joke a little bit. Uh, where would you turn, though? Where do we turn in crisis, in trials, when we don't know like, what's going on, when it feels like things are moving all around? Um, we know the answer is Jesus, but... How do we turn to him? What parts of Jesus do we look to? Where do we look? So I'm really excited to, to dig into this um, series and dig into these words. Uh, let's, let's read them all together. We're just going to do seven verses this morning. 2 Timothy, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, day and night. And I remember your tears. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. And I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands, of my hands. 
For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, um, help us to fan into flame uh, this, this faith that is within us that you put there. Help us, Lord, to look to you that our tears may be turned into joy. Uh, help us, Lord, to seek you as our true and one and only foundation um, as we try to look to you and your word this morning. In your holy name we pray. Amen. So, as you might know, I am primarily have been, at least for the last couple of years, a youth guy uh, doing, doing youth ministry in Birmingham and then here as well. That was almost bad. Um, and uh, one of my favorite youth games to play uh, kind of opening is Taylor Swift or Lamentations. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly like it sounds. Is in any given quote from Taylor Swift lyrics or the message version of Lamentations. And it's generally really hard. I've seen a lot, of, uh, a lot of people fail at that. I have one, just one for us this morning. You can think about uh, what, who wrote this, Taylor Swift or Lamentations. We've been to hell and back. We've nowhere to turn, nowhere to go. Rivers of tears pour from my eyes. Taylor Swift or Lamentations? Yeah, I don't know. It's a trick question. It, it's Lamentations. It's Lamentations 347. So Lamentations is another really helpful book. Uh, it's all about godly grief in absolute cri- an absolute crisis. You know, and the Lamentations deals with, like, what on earth do we do? And it gives just Taylor Swift-level dramatic language uh, for how to, how to grieve before the Lord. Um, and, and, and so... Yeah, as we're thinking about that, maybe you're feeling like Taylor Swift in Lamentations. Like, I just need that level of, of dramatic imagery. I want to share another verse from right, at, right around there in Lamentations. Lamentations 3.31. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men tells us in Lamentations that God is using our tears somehow, some way. God is using our tears for our good. That he doesn't grieve us for no purpose. That he doesn't continue to leave us in grief forever. That's our first point uh, from this passage in 2 Timothy, is that Timothy's tears are Paul's joy. This is in verse 4. Timothy's tears produce Paul's joy. Let's look at verse 4 together. Our tears, they're not meant to just grieve us. They're meant to actually help us grow, which is like maybe not a very comforting thing to say if you're in the midst of crisis. But our tears produce uh, Paul's joy. Verse 4, like how does that happen? You know, a wooden translation of verse 4 would say that, you know, I'm long to see you. I'm remembering your tears because joy I might be filled up with it. That's like a really bad Greek, Greek translation. In Greek, there's only one word between tears and joy. Paul puts these ideas right next to each other so that we might see that there's a, there's a link here. Timothy's tears produce Paul's joy. How does that happen? Like, why is Paul happy that Timothy is crying? Certainly he's not happy that he's crying, but why on earth is Timothy's pain going to produce joy that's going to fill up Paul? Um, this is this is right at the center of something that's just really encouraging for me right now, hopefully for you too, is that God can work in our grief. God actually is pretty much always working in our grief. 
let me caveat that with, I know that's really insensitive to say. Please, you do not have permission to say that to someone while they're crying. <laughs> that God is, can work in this. Maybe you have said that, and maybe there's still a place for that. But let's, let's be really careful about that. Uh, the church generally tends to kind of overshove that into people's faces. You know, um, but maybe when people are out of the, like, what just happened moment, and when we start to ask why, um, why am I going through pain? That might be a moment where we can go to this category of our, God using our grief to actually produce joy. God works in our grief, in your and my tears, to actually re- produce repentance. You know, um, I'm, each of us is walking through right now, uh, and I, hopefully, at least I am, like this new, new vision of our own sin, this new picture of, of, uh, of brokenness. I've at least heard from a lot of you how this shakeup is causing a new vision, a new, a new looking at your own sin and saying, man, I really need to repent of this. I really need to speak to someone about this. Uh, and maybe that's something that's still working in your heart right now. Um, God's, our grief can lead us to repentance. You know, we know Jesus is real, but might, maybe we're feeling that need in a new way now. You know, I, we all know we're broken, and yet maybe you're feeling the, the brokenness of people and humanity on a new and personal level, right? We're Presbyterian. We generally believe in total depravity. Uh, but, like, maybe you feel that in a new way outside of just a cerebral thing, right? Um, God works in our tears to bring about real joy. You know, and this is one of the amazing things about the gospel. Our world offers all kinds of fake versions of joy, fake happiness, cheap happiness that just does not last, right? Where do you turn to to like feel happy when you're sad? Where, what are the bad things you turn to? You know, often those things leave us, they, they leave us, they're short-lived, they're unfulfilling, we tend to abuse them, they, they end up hurting ourselves and hurting other people. We have all these things, and you know what yours are, that you turn to for sort of a short little burst of happiness when you're feeling bad. Scripture gives us something better. It says, instead of turning to self-medicating, whatever that looks like for you, instead of doing that, your tears can actually produce true and genuine joy. You know, we want to stuff our feelings down, put on a smiling face, show up at church like everything's all right. And, and that's not a lie. That's not true. That's a lie. We don't only lie to, to each other or to ourselves when we do that. We, we lie to God. So, it, but it's just not easy to sit in these tears, to sit in those Taylor Swift kind of rivers of tears moments. Um, my own tendency is to just always make a joke. So uh, sorry if I do that too much. Uh, but we have true joy in Jesus. We have true joy in Christ. Our, our tears can actually produce true joy. Paul's reminding us throughout this book that joy and genuine faith is actually produced by trials. You know, one of the stanzas in that hymn that I'm sure we'll be singing, How Firm a Foundation, I've been really clinging to this a lot. It says, when through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. It's a picture we see multiple times in scripture of purification, you know, how, how you purify metal. They heat it up and all the dross floats to the top and they scoop that off and they have this purer metal left behind. And, and scripture uses this picture in a lot of places, actually, to talk about how trials produce joy and how they produce steadfastness in us. That through trials... 
there's a painful melting process, and yet the dross, the, the waste is scooped away, that we're actually purified through fire and through trials. That's hard to do. Maybe not comforting when you're in the middle of it. But, but that is part of why Tim, Paul can say, I rejoice. I cannot wait to see you, even though you were crying, Timothy. Paul's perspective, his broader picture, lets him see that Timothy's tears are actually something to rejoice at. And that's a perspective Timothy was probably too close to see. That's a perspective maybe you're still too close to see. I'm still too close to see. Like in the moment, that is okay if we can't see that. And yet one of the beauties of, of this passage is that from outside, maybe people that are speaking into your life right now that aren't here at Holy Cross can kind of see and already maybe starting to see how God can work in the midst of crisis. Uh, Martin Luther, one of my favorite images from him, you know, if you remember his story, he spent years of his life confessing, confessing, confessing sin for hours and hours and hours every day, going into this booth to confess. And he finally kind of had this breakdown, hence Protestantism, but he had this breakdown where he said, like, it's actually all about grace and not about my confession. And what he said in retrospect was that all I was doing was navel-gazing. I was looking at my belly button. That there's this picture, this posture we enter into as sinners when we hear God's law and we hear how God calls us to live, that our tendency is to navel-gaze. We want to curve inwards on ourselves, and we want to look at our own sins, at our own problems, and just stay there. And that's, that's okay. Like There's time and space to stay there. Hopefully you heard that from Charles last week. You know, It's okay to lament. Uh, it's good to lament. Scripture has a place to lament. Taylor Swift lyrics. Um, but uh, also, we're called not just to navel gaze, but to look up to Christ. That, that this is our posture as Christians in grace. That we can actually not just navel gaze, but look up to the cross. That as we receive God's grace and mercy and peace, we actually can get out of just staring at our own problems and sin and pain. We can move eventually past only feeling that, and instead looking to the cross of Christ. Obviously, that's hard to do. Hopefully, you know that that does not have to happen immediately, but that is where we're headed, and there's, there's hope in that. That's our first point. Our Timothy's tears can produce Paul's joy. Our second big point is, and this is throughout the whole passage, is that our spiritual family actually gives us a foundation our spiritual family, our, our heritage, our spiritual ancestors actually provides a foundation for us in the midst of, of crisis and trials. That this is maybe intuitive, but that's not something I would have thought of uh, to preach this morning. I'm glad it's in the Bible. Uh, that's not something I would have thought to lean into. You know, I'm from the southeast, uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee. In Chattanooga, there's this weird phenomenon. When people ask where you went to school, they mean what high school did you go to. Specifically, they mean one or two of these big uh, private schools in town. Uh, in Tucson, I think that's probably not the case. But like in Chattanooga, there's this weird thing when they're like, oh, where are you from? And they want to know exactly like which of these private schools did you go to. I didn't go to one, so I don't have a good answer. But uh, it's this thing that sort of follows you around. Maybe you have this own version in your own life. These, these histories of your past that sort of follow you around wherever you, wherever you are from. Like, you know, you will always be from Oro Valley or the Foothills or downtown Tucson or wherever that is. And that sort of defines, at least in people's minds, right or wrong, where you're from and a little bit of what you're about. Our, our past and our heritage shapes who we are, whether we like it or not. And there's something really encouraging in this, too, to say we can look at our, our spiritual heritage and our family. It's not just our literal family and, and actually seek a foundation there in our faith. 
Uh, this language is all through this passage, uh, if you didn't notice it, um, of, of like family ancestor stuff. In verse 2, I think we have a slide for this. In verse 2, uh, he says, Timothy, my beloved child. In verse 3, Paul says, I'm thinking God whom I serve, as did my ancestors. In verse 5, he says, you know, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, Timothy, the same faith that your grandmom, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, had, and that same faith is dwelling in you now. It's this like picture of faith that's passed down. Also, I love these names, Eunice and Lois. Um, Paul points out that where they come from, like it or not, matters. That their spiritual family gives them a spiritual foundation. And he actually sees a connection between himself and Timothy. And this is going to strengthen Timothy. Paul and Timothy aren't related. Uh, there's generations between them. Paul's much older. This letter is written probably at the very end of Paul's life. It's definitely written from a prison in Rome to this pastor, Timothy, in Ephesus and to the church in Ephesus because Timothy shared it and we, we got it in the New Testament. So Timothy didn't keep it to himself. But Paul wrote, writes this letter and he calls him his beloved child. In uh, 1 Timothy, he says, my one true child in the faith. This picture of, of Paul as Timothy's spiritual mentor you know, we can all think back to our spiritual mentors, to your spiritual mentors. Even if you don't feel like you have any or any good ones, you were here. Somebody got you here at some point. Uh, and, and, you know, flaws and all. And we should look back with eyes wide open at the, the spiritual flaws of our mentors and people in our past. Flaws and all, these people still pointed us to Jesus. You know, Paul is full of flaws. He says, I am chief of sinners. He's really, really open about that. I'm the chieferest. I'm the sinnerest. I'm the biggest of all the sinners. And yet, Timothy is still looking back up to him. You know, there's people in your life right now, maybe you haven't thought about it in this way, there's people in your life right now who you are there, one of their spiritual mentors. Uh, this is the beauty of the local church. There's people who maybe need you in this local church to be one of their spiritual mentors and leaders. And, uh, and, and that does not mean that you are without sin or without flaws. Instead, it means that we actually need to embrace those. We need to understand those, admit those, repent of those. And we can look back at our mentors and say, yeah, they were messed up. They had some problems. And yet, um, we, we look to Jesus. That's always what we're hoping to do. How, how have these people pointed us to Jesus in their own ways? Uh, how, how is our spiritual heritage informing us? Uh, and, and maybe there's another question here as you read this passage that's confusing. You know, Paul and Timothy don't actually share the same family. Paul says in verse 3 that his ancestors served God, which is kind of a weird statement for us, right? Because Paul's a Pharisee of Pharisees. Paul is like as Jewish as it gets. So his ancestors served God, but they definitely didn't serve Jesus. Paul, though, is making this link between the Old Testament and the New. He's reminding us of something we have a tendency to forget, especially today, that the God of the Old Testament is the exact same as the God of the New. That, that God never changes. The big word for that is immutability. God doesn't change. His love is steadfast. It never, never gives up or runs out. Um, and, and Paul, if you remember his story, has had this really dramatic conversion and yet he still says, I look back, I have the same faith that my ancestors had. I still serve Yahweh. I still serve the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the same God you serve today. Like, no matter what your actual family is like, no matter what your spiritual mentors are like, you have the same faith as Timothy. 
You serve the exact same God who parted the Red Sea, the exact same God who was there in all of these wonderful biblical stories. The same God is yours and ours today. Paul says, I serve the same God my ancestors did. That's really encouraging. There's a, there's a foundation in our spiritual heritage. Um, it's the same God Jesus serves. You know, if you forgot, Jesus was Jewish. <laughs> you know, if you want to, I love those WWJD bracelets. Sorry if you have one. Um, they're great. They are good. But, you know, if you really want to ask what, what would Jesus do? Like he would fulfill the whole Old Testament law perfectly and not eat bacon and like have a lot of odd things for us today. Jesus was as Jewish as it ever got. And uh, so like Jesus, we serve the same God as Jesus though. We serve that same God. Thankfully, we don't have to follow the law because he did perfectly for us. We don't, we, we don't have to follow the, the sacrificial law in the way he did. Uh, but, uh, you know, we serve the same God. We're a part of the same spiritual lineage that the whole Old Testament connects us to. That is, not, that, that is our spiritual heritage. If you feel particularly like, man, I don't have a good spiritual lineage, I, I don't, have, you know, my family maybe weren't Christians growing up or, or the people that I looked up to have failed me. Well, good news. Like your spiritual lineage is the entire Old Testament as well. We have a lot more uh, lineage to look to. Verse five, Paul continues the same idea and he says, you know, Paul or Timothy, you got the same faith that your mom and your grandmom had. And Timothy is probably thinking like, yeah, but I remember like Eunice was kind of like had bad breath and pinched my cheeks. And like Lois and I got into a lot of arguments growing up. Like when we look back at our family members and the faith that they have maybe imparted to us, it's all, always going to be hard for us to see past their spiritual flaws or their human flaws. Timothy, I'm sure, had that same struggle with his mom and his grandmom. And yet Timothy, Paul says, you have the same faith that dwelled in them. Look at this genuineness of their faith. That's the word Paul uses. Look at this faith and realize that you have the same spirit of God dwelling in you that they did. Now, why on earth, this is sort of the next question, why does this matter to us today? Like, this is like a very unmodern American way to look at faith. You know, we tend to look at faith as me and Jesus, and like if there's a church that helps me, then great. We tend to look at faith as like, it is primarily between me and the Lord. And that's true. Like, your faith should be your own. You should own it. It is, primar- it is a thing that is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But Paul tells us, you know, we actually can't and shouldn't try to do this on our own. There's, there's a foundation that we miss out on if we say it's only about me and Jesus. There's a spiritual foundation that we have as we look to our spiritual heritage. Um, you know, I think Gracie and I are going to go visit Biosphere this afternoon. We tend to think of our faith like Biosphere, this cut-off bubble where we just want to live in this, like, insulated space and say, like, it's just me and Jesus. Uh, A book I read as a teenager said, like, let's read the Bible like we're on an island all by our own, and we have no other stuff. I think that's really dumb. I loved it when I was, like... (laughs) Read it fresh, sure. But like, there's been 2,000 years of Christians trying to read this faithfully. And like, if nothing else, it's really arrogant to say, I'm going to have information. I'm not going to have blind spots that they don't fill me in on. You know, one of the things about this passage in particular is it, it shows us why church history is important. It shows us why like, we're part of a, a, a history of confessional churches. We're part of 
this thing, this broader network, we're part of this broader story of Christians believing God than just us at Holy Cross. Thank goodness, I think we can all see that in the midst of pastoral change. That like, thank goodness there's some structure outside of just this little building between Domino's and CVS. Like, we'd have a whole lot less to stand on. Our foundations lie deep in time as well. Um, This picture of family, too, that Paul leans into, we we again want to look at it, my faith is all about me. But, like, this picture of family is actually inherent to how we see God himself. You know, this is how we refer to God as a father. God is the father, Christ the son. Um, and, And all of you, if you've had a father, they've been imperfect, right? If you've had a father, they have been less than they could or should or you would have them to be. That is the case for all of us, for any of our spiritual mentors. And yet God is this perfect father. And Paul actually links to this too. It is greeting here, verse 2. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. He says that we've gotten grace, mercy, and peace from this perfect father in heaven. And then there's this other word that I almost skipped over, at the Christ Jesus, our Lord. Lord is actually in Greek, it's another family term. Kurios, it means master or lord, kind of like Downton Abbey, master or lord. Um, uh, it's, it's a word, though, in the household codes in the, old, in the rest of the New Testament. The lord, the master, is like a part of their family. Like this is whether their families there kind of extend outside of their biological family into the whole household that they live in. This is why, if you remember... In the rest of the New Testament, when there's these codes for how to live as husbands and wives and children, it also goes to bond servants and slaves and that because they tended to think of their family as not just the like the the four of them and the two and a half kids that live together in suburbia, but like actually all the people that lived in their household. And so the kurios, the Lord, it's a word for Jesus, and it means a little more when we apply it with Jesus, but it's still a family word. And, and he says, you know, Jesus is our Lord. He's our master. Uh, this is what all churches and pastors, we just stand in for the true head of the church. You know, Holy Cross is led by elders, but it's not ultimately led by elders, hopefully. It's led by Jesus. And, and so always standing just in for Lord. So as we think about like what is our spiritual heritage, you know, as a church, we have one as well. We have a spiritual heritage. We're rooted, if you're not aware, because we're not, this is like not our main thing, but we're rooted in Presbyterian history. We're from this reformed background. Uh, we have like documents and confessions that we look back to that go, you know, back to 500 years. And then we look past beyond that too. As Christians, we can dig into church history and say, man, what is it that Christians everywhere and always have affirmed? We should probably know those things too. <laughs> what is it that, you know, if, if it was just me on my own on a desert island, I probably wouldn't figure the Trinity out correctly, at least. I might know that there's three, but I'd be like, well, there are parts. or We do some of those famous heresies. And, and as us, as we can look to church history to grow. We can look to our spiritual heritage to provide a deeper foundation for our faith as we think about that. Uh, and, and obviously there's problems. There's problems in our lives with our family members and our spiritual mentors. There's problems in our church history, right? Uh, all, you know, our, our history of white European colonial uh, church history, like that, that's not where we exclusively draw from, but there's significant problems with race and justice and colonialism there that we clearly don't want to 
imbibe, and yet we have to realize where we come from. Whenever we look at our spiritual heritage, our families, uh, our history, or just the people we know in our lives that, that have trained us, we're going to see problems. Maybe right now more than you're used to. And yet that's always the case, and we always look to Jesus there. That's always the case. God has always and only used broken men, except for Jesus. Every other one is broken. Third point, we're called to fan the flame. We're called to fan the flame. Verse 6, Timothy tells us that for this reason, because of your spiritual foundation your family, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power, of love, and of self-control. Fanning a flame. That's a, a pretty easy to picture to grasp onto, right? You know, we've all probably, at some point in your life, you've started a fire uh, and tried to sit there and blow on it and fan it. I think the best, best picture I had of this thinking this week was uh, a couple years ago when I was in college, I went backpacking with one of my friends, Sam. It was a polar vortex, much like the Southeast is doing right now. It was around zero. We had this big fire we got going, and we threw some logs on the outside. We got a little fire going, and we had these big frozen logs. And like the whole time we were trying, we'd get a fire going and it would burst up and then it would just immediately die as soon as, as it seemed like we had made any progress. We sat there for I don't know how long fanning on it and blowing on it and trying to add smaller and smaller sticks and bigger sticks and we could never get the ice on the outside of the big logs to melt. It was awful. Uh, as, as we think about fanning the flame of our faith, I think that might be a helpful imagery. Uh, Timothy already has this flame in verse 6. Timothy already has this flame in his hearts. You have this flame in your hearts, uh, even in his present circumstances. And yet Paul says, you're still going to have to fan the thing. You know, God gives us the fire, but we're still going to have to, to, to keep it uh, going. You know, he, he says, I've already given you this flame. This, this flame of faith, this, this gift from God of his Holy Spirit and Timothy, it's not something that Timothy started. Um, Timothy did not start this fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. Um, <laughs> that's right, youth pastor, cringy jokes. Um, Timothy did not start the fire. You did not start the fire. This is one of the things we believe as a church. Uh, faith does not primarily come from me and my decision. That's important and that has to happen. But faith primarily comes from God saying, I want you. I'm adopting you. I am bringing you into my family and I will not let that fail. That is where faith primarily comes from. The, the primary actor here is always Jesus. The, the initiator of this relationship is not me choosing to walk down the aisle, but Jesus saying, I want you, even though you're a sinner. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So this flame has been given to us, and yet we're still called to fan it. We're still called to, to work uh, towards that. Not that we earn anything with our works, but we're still called to work. Um, he, he reminds Timothy that he, he needs to keep fanning this thing. This is, I mean, maybe we ask, like, what does it mean to fan the flame? That's sort of the rest of the book. <laughs> we'll get there each week. That's also sort of the rest of the Christian life. Um, that, you know, I've probably said this before, but my, one of my favorite books, Pilgrim's Progress, the very beginning of the book, like the first third of the way in, he comes to the cross and like lets his sin roll away and he's saved. And I think if we, if we wrote that book today, like that would be the end of the book. It'd be like, great, he's Christian now, awesome. 
But the book is not that. There's the whole rest of the book where he's got to go down this like trial of the Christian life, where he's got to continue this process that's ongoing of sanctification, where he's got to constantly be working towards uh, this, this final promised land. He's always saved by God's grace, but he's still, most of the work, most of the life is not about this decision you make with Jesus one time. It's this ongoing fanning of a flame. Sometimes it feels like that fire might go out, but we got to keep fanning. And uh, he, specifically how he tells us in this passage to fan that flame, he reminds him in verse 7 that God has given us not a spirit of fear, but instead his Holy Spirit, a spirit of power and of love and of self-control. And the spirit that he's given us is the opposite of fear. And like a little thought experiment. What is the opposite of fear? How would you define that? A lot of good words you could put in there. The three that he gives us here are really not ones I would choose. He says, not at fear, but power, love, self-control. This is the opposite of a spirit of fear. Instead, the spirit you have, God's Holy Spirit, gives you power, love, and self-control. As we look to that, uh, you know, power, right? This is the part we normally latch on to, the Holy Spirit. There's power. We can do things. Um, God gives us ability um, beyond what is ours. Love. This is the part I think... I at least tend to miss when we think about the Holy Spirit. Love. The Spirit is always marked by love. If we see someone claiming power in the Holy Spirit and there is not love, it's not the Holy Spirit. Done. Solved. Easy. 1 Corinthians 13, the wedding chapter. If I speak in tongues of men and angels, it's not about weddings. It's applied to weddings. It's good for weddings. It's not about weddings, though. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, if I'm a noisy gong, if I'm a clanging cymbal, and if I have prophetic powers, understand all mysteries, all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to move mountains, Mount Lemon, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away everything I have, if I deliver it, my body to be burned, but I have not love, I have nothing. And this whole chapter in 1 Corinthians 13 about love is, is meant to address Corinth, who's obsessed with spiritual power. And yet, like us, they've done that at the expense of actually recognizing God's love. And, and so he's telling us here, if we, want, if we want to have the opposite of fear, it's not just about power and confidence and ego. It actually has to be marked with God's love. A God, God's love is, is ca- encapsulated in no better place than you know, the death uh, of Jesus Christ. That... God's love is the the ultimate love humanity has ever seen is this man who knew no sin, who became sin. This man who gave up his life for people he didn't even know yet, who who gave up his life willingly uh, and laid it down for each of us, for you and for me. That is what love is. That is true love. I'm glad this informs our marriages, but it's not about that. Uh, Jesus' love is so much stronger, and this is one of the main markers of the Holy Spirit. Power, love, and self-control. The opposite of fear is also self-control. God's Spirit produces self-control in us. That means not that we're just going to immediately end all addictions and bad habits and we'll never procrastinate again at all. Uh, That is certainly not the case. Instead, it means we cannot say, we cannot give in to the temptation to say, I'm sorry, I just can't help it. We cannot give in to the temptation as Christians to say, like, I'm sorry, I just I can't control myself. That is not viable. That is not a, an allowed excuse if, if we have God's Spirit in us. 
God has given us power and love and self-control. To use a big word that makes us culpable, responsible for our sin. You know, we are responsible for our sin. We cannot just say, well, I'm fallen, total depravity, like I can't do anything. God gives us self-control and says, calls us to accountability. This is one of the beautiful things about the local church is that we're, we live life with each other because we all have blind spots. So our friends, our brothers, our sisters in Christ, the people in our life groups and men's and women's groups and Bible studies can say, hey man, I, I think you might be off track here. He calls us to accountability and that, that makes sense because there's this baseline of self-control. So God starts this fire in our hearts. He gives us the Holy Spirit. But our job going forward day by day is to continue to fan this flame. Uh, Sam and I, my backpacking trip, we were fanning the flame. Eventually we gave up. The fire went out and we just crawled into our tent and had a very miserable and cold night. Eventually hiked out in the morning. The good news is that scripture is very clear. This fire in our hearts from the Lord, this faith that he's given us, will not go out. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Romans 8, nothing can separate us. We're called to keep fanning, and yet God is the one who will ultimately keep that fire of faith alive in us. That, that is hopefully something that brings comfort in the midst of, of hard times, in the midst of, of dark days. Our, our flame in Christ is a lot more durable than the fires we're used to. Um, and because, as we're going to keep seeing, there's these deep foundations we have that go beyond and outside of myself. And we have a foundation in our families. Uh, we have a foundation in our church family. We have a foundation in our history, in our theology. We have foundations. Our spiritual foundations go much deeper than just ourselves and how we're feeling, even if you're feeling like Taylor Swift. Uh, even if you feel like there's rivers of tears coming from your eyes, Paul says, I'm ready to turn those tears into, Jesus says, I'm ready to turn those tears into joy. Um, that, that there's biblical language for grief. There's biblical language for not knowing where to turn next. That's, that's actually somewhere that scripture takes us, not a bad thing. And yet God says, I'm working in that so that it might produce joy. I'm working out so that it might produce real and genuine joy. Um, Paul encourages Timothy and us that our trials are for eventually our joy and uh, that, that he's given us a much bigger foundation. Uh, our job is to, to not look to the trials, not look to try to get out of it right now, but just to continue fanning that flame. Uh, and that's, that's where we look uh, as we see our one true God, one true foundation, our true Father uh, in, in God. Thanks for listening to this audio from Holy Cross Church. Visit us at holycrosstucson.com to find more resources and connect with us.